read. Father, we do want to thank you for this part of the Bible that uh, uh, is uh, helpful for us, gives us confidence. We pray you help us to keep concentrating well, to understand, to remember, and to go home rejoicing. And we pray you help us to do that because we understand more about Jesus as we study the Bible together. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 8, verse, verses 1 to 25, and um, starting verse 1. You might remember that Stephen has just been killed, and verse, chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart might be forgiven you. 
For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what he said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. They've gone, we've got peace and quiet, and we can answer this uh, really important question, which is, don't Christians follow a loser God? I mean, look at the evidence. The numbers are falling. You read stories of ministers in the headlines on the make. You see all the different divisions in church groups. And when you look at God, therefore, don't you think the wheels are falling off his wagon? Things are unraveling and uh, getting worse. The thing is, if you looked at Acts chapter 8, you might just ask yourself the same questions because... The numbers of people going to church in Jerusalem are in steep decline because lots of people have left. And again in Acts chapter 8 there are ministers on the make wanting money. And you see how there has been a group called the Samaritans and they represent a split in the church that has lasted 1,000 years. And so you might say, we've got all of that happening in this chapter. Maybe God's a loser. But look more closely at the chapter and you will learn three things. One is that God wins. Second, that God serves. And third is that God unites. Let's look at the first of those, that uh, God wins. And I wonder if you can see that in the first four verses. But if you read them very quickly, you'll think the opposite. you think that God's a loser again. Because if you look at verse 1, you see that uh, the church in Jerusalem is emptying. You look at verse 2 and you see the Christians are crying in Acts chapter 10, page uh, 916. And you will see that uh, God's not winning. Saul's winning. He's the one who's on the rampage, everybody's frightened of him. And he's going for absolutely everybody. He's not just going for ringleaders, he's going for everyone. He's not just going for men, he's going for women as well. It's a mess. Surely, God's losing. But look a bit more closely, and you see it's the other way around. Look at verse uh, uh, two, and you see the Jerusalem, the apostles um, are still in Jerusalem. That's not verse two, is it? Verse one, the apostles are still in Jerusalem. Maybe the reason for that is that there are two groups of uh, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Uh, you got the one group that speaks Aramaic, if you like, they are the original Jewish nation, but then you've got these other Jews, they're called the Hellenistic Jews, they speak Greek, they've come from other parts of Europe into Jerusalem. And you remember this, this group that had a group of widows that weren't being looked after properly, and therefore this group had two leaders, but well, they had six leaders, but two of them uh, became famous, Stephen and Philip. 
They were leaders of the, this group, the, the Greek-speaking Jews. And Stephen was stoned, we saw that last week, and now Philip is on the run because it's probably this group that's being targeted. But the Aramaic-speaking Jews and the Christians there were probably safe, and therefore they stayed. And while they stayed, there's a Christian flag still flying over Jerusalem. The gospel is preached still over Jerusalem. And you can't say that the church is losing if all the foundations are still in place. God's winning. So the apostles are still there. Secondly, the Christians scatter in verse 4, but it's not random. Their persecution leads to preaching. And it is a masterstroke if you look at this and see how Samaria is not just another place that gets to hear because people have happened to go there. Samaria gets to hear because this is what God always intended. If you look at Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you see how right at the very beginning God said the gospel has to be preached in Jerusalem and Judea and stage 2, Samaria. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And uh, that's exactly what's happening. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria. And now they are being witnesses in Samaria. God is going straight right down the line according to his plan. And then thirdly, you might think Saul is a menace. He's the guy who seems to be winning. Let me tell you, Luke is only introducing him here because uh, this man Saul is going to become Paul, the world's greatest evangelist. And again, it's a work of genius because you might say he became, help people become Christians after he became a Christian in the next chapter. But actually, you look at chapter 8 and you see that he's actually instrumental in people becoming Christians right from the very start. So we need to understand that uh, God is winning all the time. I don't know if you watch boxing matches, but it's very hard to say sometimes who's winning the, 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 the fight after the first round. You've often got to wait until the final result to see who's won. But if you want to read the final result, just uh, turn to chapter 9, verse 31. Okay? Just three chapters after Stephen gets his head smashed open with stones. Chapter 9, verse 31. And you see that uh, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee, and now Samaria had peace. The panic's over. And God has won. And the church has peace and is being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied. That's the scorecard. And it tells you that round one has more to follow it. But even if you look at round one you will see that there are these different signs of God winning. When you might just read it quickly and think that that's not the case. God wins. Secondly, 
God serves. And really verses 9 to 13 are about two different men, two different servants. First you get uh, Simon who gets the spotlight and uh, he is uh, uh, someone who sells himself as someone great and you've got Philip. So Simon is selling himself as someone great in verse 9 and if you were there with Simon verse 10 tells you you will come away saying Simon is great but if you're with Philip Philip isn't telling you that he is great he is telling you that Jesus is great in verse 12 and if you've seen him in action you be baptized in the name of Jesus because that's who Philip is pointing to. Now again, you might just think that the miracle battle is a power battle. Who's got the more, the bigger power? And that's true. It is a power battle. And Simon has to admit that Peter is better at it. And Peter is really showing Simon that his miracles are not magic. They are God's miracles. And Simon can see that. You know they say when you see miracles, don't send a Bible teacher to check whether the miracles are in the Bible. And don't set a scientist to see if the miracles are possible by science. Send a magician. Because a magician knows the tricks. And he can spot the tricks. And Simon can see these are no tricks. This is God at work. So miracles show God's power, but if you look at verse 7, you see the miracles actually show God's compassion. It shows that God serves. Because you will see the miracles that are done are actually for the good of others. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And God serves. And what Philip is saying is that this is the God he wants people to follow. He's preaching good news to them about the kingdom of God in verse 12. And the good news about the kingdom of God is that Jesus comes and he serves. Did that all his life? And when he died on the cross, what he did when he served was he took the punishment that people deserve, but he took it on himself. So then those people who trusted him and followed him will be given heaven instead of hell. And the miracles illustrate this. The miracles say you can trust the man who's talking about heaven because he is giving you a foretaste of heaven. And a foretaste of heaven is a foretaste of the God who serves. Fascinating how when you pick up the last book of the Bible, it's, if you like, a preview into heaven. And when you get into heaven, you see what people are worshipping Jesus for? They're worshipping the Lamb upon the throne who was slain. Yeah, he's on the throne. He is powerful. He's impressive. But he served. He died. 
And when you look at the uh, very end of Revelation chapter um, uh, 21, verse 4, it's there on the screen if you want to uh, not look it up, but it's in your notes, Revelation 21, verse 4. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away because of him and what he brings to you. Very personal, isn't it? He doesn't send somebody else to wipe away your tears. He comes. And given the greatness of this king, to have him in front of you wiping your tears away tells you exactly what kind of servant he is, despite his greatness. And I want to suggest that if you're a Christian, a large part of anticipating heaven is imagining a world being ruled by such a humble king that he will impact you and you be changed into being someone humble like him along with everyone else in his kingdom. So the future kingdom of heaven is going to be a kingdom of very humble relationships where people are passionately concerned for the good of others. But Simon shows that he isn't a real Christian because he still wants to serve himself. He wants to, if you like, uh, uh, financially buy up the distribution rights of the Holy Spirit. He's like, I'll set up a franchise. You can have your name over my door, but I'll sell the product for you. And if you had a leader like that in the church, and he would have been a very influential man, wouldn't he? If he was a man of magic and a man of greatness, he would have made money. You wouldn't say no to Simon getting a position of prominence in the church, except Peter does just that in verses 20-23. It is a terrible curse. He says, let your, effectively saying, may your silver drag you down to hell if you want to use the church to make money. And when we see a Simon like that, we need to imagine somebody under the curse of Peter, ultimately going down into hell with that desire to make money out of God's people. Because God serves. The third thing to say is that God unites. Let me tell you, Samaria represents 1,000 years of division and hostility in God's people. Let me give you a little bit of a history lesson. Because 1,000 years, 10 BC, there was one kingdom of David, and he ruled over it. But his grandson was a rubbish king, and so therefore 10 of those 12 tribes sacked him, and they set up a new kingdom in the north. And 10 tribes went and they formed what they called the new country of Ephraim, sometimes also called Israel, because there were 10 out of the 12 tribes there. 
but normally they were called Ephraim, and then the two southern tribes were called Judah. And the country of Ephraim had their capital city that was called Samaria. And so therefore you had these two groups and they were split, the northern kingdom, Ephraim with its capital city, Samaria, and the southern kingdom of Judah. And that's where the Jews came from, that's where the name comes from, the southern kingdom. And they were Jewish and they were called Jews. And the northern people ended up being called Samaritans. And they hated each other for a thousand years. Why? Even at the time that Jesus was born, when you look at John chapter 4 verse 9, it's in your notes, it says, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And when they were thinking of really bad names to call Jesus, and they really wanted to insult him, do you know what they called him? In uh, John uh, chapter, uh, where is it, 8 I think, uh, and verse 48, they said, you are a Samaritan and you're demon-possessed. That was just about as low as you could go when you wanted to insult somebody. The hatred was still very much alive. But then, there was a prophet called Ezekiel. And Ezekiel chapter 37 and verses 15 to 17, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take a stick and write on it, for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. And then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him, and join them to one another into one stick, so that they might become one in your hand. Ezekiel says effectively that this split in the kingdom is going to be healed. There is now going to be one kingdom again. Israel will be restored. Remember, right at the start in Acts chapter 1, they asked the question, Jesus, are you going to this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And the answer is yes, in Acts chapter 8, when the Holy Spirit is given to the Samaritans. It's very interesting to see how it happened. They become Christians. Philip explains about Jesus, the good news. They believe it, they're baptized, they become Christians, but they don't get the Holy Spirit. Every other time, when you're baptized and you become Christian, you receive the Holy Spirit, one package. Now, it doesn't happen. Why? Because you need Peter and John to come up from Jerusalem, the apostles, and to make sure that they have exactly the same experience of the Holy Spirit that the Jewish people had in Acts chapter 2, so there's no distinction. If that did not happen, then you would have had one church in Jerusalem with the Holy Spirit. And then Peter, uh, Philip comes and he preaches and he baptizes. If they had the Holy Spirit then, they would have had another group baptized and the two groups would still be separate. The two sticks wouldn't have come together. But now the, the apostles come from Jerusalem and they can see the same experience is given to this group. The two sticks are not joined. Fascinating. Because John, if you remember, once Jesus was going through Samaria, he was on his way to Jerusalem, and uh, they wanted to stop at Samaria and buy some food. And the Samaritans said, no, you're going to Jerusalem, you're not our friends, we won't give you any food. And then John came up with this really bright idea, you know what he suggested? 
it's there in uh, uh, Luke, and uh, I think it's put, I put it in your notes, uh, and uh, Luke chapter 9, verses 55 to 6, John had this brilliant idea, he said, why don't we call down fire on the Samaritan villages and teach them that we're angry, that they shouldn't say no to God as he goes through and uh, serving him. So John in Luke chapter 9 wanted to call down fire on the Samaritans. Now he's come and he's calling down the Holy Spirit on the Samaritans. And uh, they are given the same experience, the two sticks become one and he unites, God unites his divided kingdom. That's why the delay between being baptized and uh, believing and being baptized, there's a delay between that and receiving the Holy Spirit. It's a one-off delay because it's a one-off thing for God to unite his divided kingdom. And the Jerusalem church needs to be there to see how God treats the Samaritans the same way that he treated the Jews. And they get it. Because if you look at verse 25, they go home now touring the Samaritan villages. Previously they come straight from Jerusalem to Samaria, but now they don't go straight back. Now they're going through the villages preaching. If they were going through Jewish uh, territory, they'd be going through the villages preaching, and now it's like they're doing that in Samaria, as if they were on home soil. So the two uh, kingdoms are thoroughly uh, drawn together. That great prophecy in Ezekiel 37 that you never thought would come true has now come true. The kingdoms are united again. So it's got a lot to teach us as we take it all in. First, if you're, if you're new to Christian things, if you're not yet a Christian, you're thinking about it, um, you might just think, actually, Christians are struggling to survive. I don't want to join them because it may be that kind of God's a bit of a loser God. You might think that. And I don't want you to think that. Because the truth is that this is not a lost cause. God wins. And you will lose if you're not one of his people. And it's therefore important to become one, because God always wins. And become one, because you will love to be one day a part of this humble, glorious kingdom. And also, become one, because it would be a wonderfully uniting thing to be part of that kingdom, even if you feel you don't fit in. Like the Samaritans would have felt once that they didn't fit in, nonetheless, they are drawn in. Maybe that you're someone who feels you never fit in, and God will unite you. It's a wonderful thing to know how this God wins, how this God uh, humbles, and this God uh, it humbly serves, and how this God uh, unites. If you've been to uh, church many times, it may be that you find yourself 
becoming a bit cynical. Because that selfish magician, poor Simon, he doesn't disappear when you turn over the page and you don't see him anymore. This Simon is a magician who appears everywhere, now almost in every group of Christians around the world. So you see him uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a very staggering way um, uh, around the place wanting to use the church to make money. That's what Simons want to do. Nadia, never mind them. Learn what's going to happen with the Simons of this world. Because what they'll come to you and they'll say, give me your money and I will do miracles for you. I will take all your problems away. I will pray for you and the problems will disappear. Give me your money and I will make you rich. You will get more money back in the end. Give me your money. The Simons of this world are still around. And they're still around in almost every place. Now they are on national television if you watch the God channels. Give me your money. And you will see them around, not just in American television evangelists, you hear them in African prosperity gospel. They are across the nations. But here's the point. Don't be impressed by them. And don't be made cynical by them. Remember that what they're offering is not blessing because they themselves are cursed. If you remember what Peter said and their silver will go down to hell with them in the end. Remember, Simon. Thirdly, if you're a real believer, it's very easy isn't it, for us to feel the way that Stephen's friends felt. In Acts chapter 8, verse 2, they were weeping. And they were weeping not because they lost their mate on its own, but they were devout men in verse 2. In other words, they're crying, because it seems that the gospel is taking a battering. And maybe you're someone who's genuinely Christian and you're genuinely concerned that uh, things are getting difficult and seem to be going downhill. And you might feel that you're on the last bus of dinosaurs heading off to extinction. But God wants you to go home not to cry, but to rejoice. And he wants you to go home and to rejoice for those three reasons. First, because God is winning. Even if good people in his church are being killed, and we don't know what's going to happen to Asia Bibi as we watch the news, even if numbers seem to be in decline, which in the West sometimes it can seem that way, understand that God is winning. And my friend, look forward to uh, being, if you're a Christian, part of the humblest kingdom as uh, the most amazingly powerful king stamps his humility into the lives of those who follow him and be part of his kingdom. Imagine a future 
when you will be in a new world populated by people like this. Rejoice as you face the future and imagine what it will be like. And then rejoice as he brings together the opposites in his church into one group. Different groups may be, different nations in this room, maybe the groups that we represent could be suspicious of each other. We go around the estate and today I was talking to somebody who said that uh, there are so many uh, different nations in uh, uh, Cartwright Road that they don't talk to each other because they can't understand each other and they stand away from each other. And yet now in the church they come and the nations are here and God is making us one stick together in close brother-sister unity. It is interesting, isn't it? Today, a hundred years ago, World War I ended by Germans and English troops uh, stopping uh, the fighting at 11 o'clock. But within 20 years, those two different groups were back to fighting each other again. The peace that we celebrate today had a very short shelf life. But our final scorecard is not chapter 9, verse 31, where we see God finally wins the battle with Saul and the Samaritans and the difficulties of that time. Our final scorecard is Revelation chapter 7 and verses uh, 9 and 10. It's the last book of the Bible and it's the last minute uh, of this talk. So just turn over there in Revelation chapter 7 and I'll tell you the page number. It's page 1032. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. And as you get there, you will see. John, the person who's writing this, says, After this I looked, and behold, a great number that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out with loud voice, Salvation belongs to the God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See what you've got at the end? The scorecard tells you that the numbers haven't dropped. There's now a number that no one can count. That in the end, that uh, uh, the person in charge is not a magician, but a humble king. He sits on the throne and yet he is the Lamb who was slain and is served. And he is the God who has brought divisions together, all tribes, all peoples, all languages. And God, as you're looking at the end, the scorecard, at the finish, and we need in our day, when we think that things are in poor shape, to go home rejoicing. Let me pray that God will help us to do that. And then uh, we can uh, take some questions.
Before I pray, let me ask you to pray one minute quietly. Start rejoicing and then I'll pray and we'll take the questions after that. Let me pray as we finish. Father, we do want to thank you that numbers uh, declined in Jerusalem, but one day there will be a kingdom where no one uh, can uh, uh, count the number. Uh, there was a time uh, when uh, people uh, were uh, serving themselves, but there is a king in the future who will serve and make us attractively like him. And there was once a time when people were divided, and there will be a time when every nation, every language, every tribe will be together. Lord, we pray that when the world tells us that uh, things are going wrong, that you will help us to keep up our confidence, that you will win and one day humbly serve and gloriously unite. Keep us, we pray, rejoicing in these things that what we see in the Bible may become the reasons why we praise you this coming week. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.